To remind pet owners that Progressive covers pets in our auto policy at no extra charge, we're making a really cute pet-themed radio commercial. Hear that snoring? Two sleeping puppies. Oh, they're awake! And they're heading over to that cute chubby baby that's just sitting there. What? Oh, now they're licking his face. Words will never do this justice. You'll just have to picture it. Get coverage for your pets with an auto policy from Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Coverage for cats and dogs included with the purchase of collision coverage and is subject to policy terms. Good afternoon, good evening, North Stream. Good already this Eagle Eyes on Tech. I am Eagle Falcon. Can, can I just start off the podcast today by saying, I told you so? What did I say when it came to the MIT, Apple, and Google Alliance to use Bluetooth tagging? to track whether you have or have not been exposed to coronavirus. I started off by saying this has the potential to be a security risk. And there is also a chance it most likely will not be effective as people opt out. Well, a couple of things I did get wrong. It's not opt out. It's opt-in. The whole thing was doomed from the start! The whole project had a 0% chance of working in the first place. And then, of course, other tech outlets did decide that uh yeah you know having other health apps access the ability to just tag everyone via bluetooth might in fact pose a privacy risk as it is yet another client involved that has location data rather than it just being creepy uncle google and the cult of Mac. Wow! What are the odds? You know what actually blows me away about this? The fact that it took the tech experts almost a week to figure out what it took a derpy little Twitch streamer over in the Midwest a couple of hours to figure out. What took you so long? Of course it was going to be a security risk. You're tracking down and basing health data off random pings using Bluetooth. But of course, the fact that Apple and Google are, of course, still moving forward does say a lot. The whole thing is... Here's my thoughts on this. As an actual tool to combat COVID-19, the entire core concept is it's dead on arrival, no matter how you look at it. Because the only way it would be an effective tool 
as if the overwhelming majority of the population bought into it. But the fact that this tool is coming out, I would argue, so late in the pandemic, everyone's willingness to comply and download the app that now people are just are thinking, hey, wait a minute, you know, that might be a security risk. And what happens if there's a breach with this, that, or the other thing? Then everyone's going to know where I've been instead of it just being creepy Uncle Google that knows where I've been. Yeah. So just think about this for a second. Let's pretend for a second 20% opted in. That means that if any of that 80% contract COVID-19, I don't know where I'm going with this analogy. The point is, is that the whole concept of this is no longer, in my opinion, about letting people know if they should get tested or not. I think now... Apple and Google are moving forward with this to see if this Bluetooth technology can be used for other applications or perhaps for a future pandemic. I could see this being useful in two or three years when this is fully incorporated into, like, say, the Apple Health app or whatever the heck Android has for that, which I don't know off the top of my head. Does act, does Android actually have a health app built into it? I actually am not sure. I know Samsung does. Let me actually quickly take a look here in the, under, the, under the Google sections of my phone here. Nope, not there. Android health apps are vendor specific. So there is no massive umbrella. So that actually could be what Google would be going for. Also, can I just say I am amazed looking at the list of all the features that are coming out in the latest version of Android. How many of them are already baked in to other skins of Android from other manufacturers. Like, I know we're now getting it, getting off into the weeds and getting a little bit distracted here, but I'm looking at before, before when I hear about an Android release for like, not this last year, but the three years before then, as a iPhone user, which, by the way, still seems surreal considering how much I bash on Apple. You'd hear Android gets this feature, that feature, and I'd be like, wow, that's really cool. Now actually in the Android ecosystem, thank you phone for blurping, now actually in the Android ecosystem you hear, oh, screen recording is going to be a thing. Uh, System-wide dark mode is going to be a thing. You know what my comment is now? But I already have that. 
because it's in Samsung's One UI, but it's not in core Android. I'm actually now starting to really wonder what the heck the experience is on a stock Android phone. Is now going with a Pixel phone just like stepping backwards? I'm actually legitimately curious, but getting back to the whole Bluetooth pinging aspect of all this. The only reason to move forward with this, as I said, is just to tweak it for a future application. And it could, in fact be something for the stock health apps. But the way it's being implemented right now, being that it has to be a separate app and you have to go and willingly download it, means that the whole thing is going to fall apart. You are basically going to be installing a security hole that will most likely not tell you and warn you that you should get tested when, in fact, you have already been exposed to it and you don't find out until five days later when you have a fever. Or you may not find out ever if you manage to be one of the ones that can catch COVID-19 and just not show symptoms at all and fight it off like it's no big deal, which also is both good and bad news when it comes to the pandemic. It's good news because you have no risk of dying. It's bad news because who knows how many people you spread it to without you ever knowing. The whole thing is just worrisome. Let's shift gears radically now that we got all of that off my chest. How long do we rant on that? 10 minutes? Granted, a lot of that was also about stock Android. Real quick, while we're on, while we're on the topic of st- stock Android, um, someone in the chat has informed me that uh, the Pixel is no longer stock Android. What the heck? What phone even is stock Android now? Like, no, real talk, what is stock Android now? Is there no phone out there that gets a benefit when it comes to a new Android release? That's actually is one other thing I've noticed going back to Android. I didn't even realize it, but my Samsung S10, like, last week or two weeks ago, 
got an Android system update. It actually did bump up an entire Android version. I'm now currently current until whatever the heck Android dessert we're on right now. Android actually stopped doing dessert names, right? It doesn't matter. I didn't notice. Like literally nothing got added to the phone. Android One phones are stock Android, and that's about it. All right, let's shift gears. Amazon was forced to close all of their warehouses and cease operations in France. This is a story that makes me chuckle. Because during the pandemic, there has been... It's almost been a meme here in the U.S. what is and isn't essential. Especially, and granted, I could only speak for the state of Wisconsin. I have studied what is and isn't essential here in the state of Wisconsin, mostly because I live in Wisconsin. Your state and your country will vary. Like, for example, here in Wisconsin, GameStop is considered essential. The malls in which most GameStops are in are not essential. I will also say, considering the fact that GameStop did not have Final Fantasy VII Remake on launch day, I do have to ask, what good are you, GameStop? What what good are you? Landscaping is not considered essential, but tree trimmers are considered essential. Go figure that one out. And yes, the reason GameStop is considered essential is because is because they have communication devices, because they sell used iPads and used phones. That is why they are considered essential. Chat says, well, of course, tree trimmers are considered essential because because to prevent tree branches from going into the roads. The thing is, is that um, here in Wisconsin, the actual tree trimmer companies are not in charge of uh, the actual roads. There is a separate, there's a separate sort of wing that is in charge of that. That's part of the public work sector. So here, here's how it ends up working because of the way that order was put out. If you are just a straight up landscaper, you are not essential. You cannot operate. If you are a landscaper that also has tree trimmers, you can operate. So in the end, what it's causes is just caused landscapers to go out to freaking Home Depot 
and get one of those big tree tr- tree trimming shears so they can get the low branches. And then they're just considered, all right, we can keep working. It's a stupid differentiator. Oh. But in any case, it's a, my point is that it's almost a meme here in the U.S. of what is and isn't essential. And it's pretty much just forced companies are considered not essential to go out and venture into sectors that are essential and then say, yeah, we can totally supply this and then continue working. Which is just kind of, really? Then what was the point? However, in France, they're not having any of that. France said that you may only supply essential services. So in Amazon's case, because they literally supply everything in existence except for the used parts I need for my servers, Amazon can just keep on working, which has also led to why here in the States, Amazon delivery times are absurdly long. So Amazon... Just decide, you know, we're just going to keep selling everything. Well, in France, you can't sell non-essential items. Well, Amazon was selling non-essential items. So, the government of France shut down every single distribution center in France until... Well, the day when this podcast comes out, which is April 20th. Basically, from the 16th to the 20th, Amazon was given a four-day timeout to think about what they've done. And then they're allowed to resume as long as they don't infringe on the non-essential order again. Now, one thing I will say, I have no idea how it's going to impact all of Europe. Someone in chat says it will affect it greatly. I'm not going to lie. I have no idea. Most likely it probably will to some degree. But who knows? Chat's also talking about uh, how much in the in the states ha- have shut down or not regarding the uh, trucking infrastructure. Just because, well, I mean, we have a couple trucker truckers in the chat, and on top of that, I myself know quite a bit about logistics. Most of the Amazon warehouses are in France. Oh, oh, so yeah, actually. That is going to be, oh, huh, 
So yeah, that's actually going to make a big impact then. Oh, oh, I did not know that. Well then. That's going to be a problem. Almost as much of a problem as Fallout 76 is in general. So Fallout 76 just recently had their big Wastelanders expansion come out. Which introduces such revolutionary features as NPCs you can interact with. And just like that, I cannot help but just laugh. Underline laugh. At the fact that a revolutionary feature of Bethesda's cutting-edge MMO game that they're so proud of and put all their eggs into and said, this is going to be our latest, greatest thing. Only now introduced a feature that has been in the oldest MMO servers since inception. I mean, just let that sink in. You want to know why I keep bashing on this game? This is why. Because no matter how hard Bethesda tries, they cannot get the basics. And on the same topic of basics, in order to have some of these non-playable characters that provide quests, players are being forced to move the camps they have in-game. Because Bethesda's roadmap is so badly planned... That they put their that they put these NPC camps in places where players have already set up camp. I I I just I I cannot help but think Bethesda literally has no idea what they're doing. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe actually Bethesda is actually the world's greatest geniuses. And maybe I'm just being way, way, way too harsh on them. Maybe that's it. I'm just too harsh on them. Maybe they actually have every idea what they're doing. Maybe... Maybe moving players around and forcing them to just pick up everything they've done and just move it elsewhere. And have the players go and move things. Maybe that is actually the better way to manage things instead of, oh, I don't know. Actually planning things out for yourselves. 
real real talk here for a second. I have experience running small MMO environments. Most of my experience, of course, is in the Ragnarok Online private server community, which I've been a part of for over a decade. I've dabbled into things like Minecraft servers, World of Warcraft servers, even a little bit into other minor RPGs that I cannot remember the names of off the top of my head, in which you set up worlds and players interact with, and even customize in one way, shape, or form. You always plan around what the player can do. Always. To tell a to tell your player base, which, by the way, to have stuck around with Fallout 76 this long. Shout out to those guys, because those guys are the real troopers. To put up with the abuse. And that's what this is. This is abuse that Bethesda has put these players through. And still stick around with the game? These are your most dedicated fans. And to just go ahead and continue to find new ways to abuse them is just stunning. What's even more surprising to me as Wastelanders comes out is actually how many people are willing to go back and give Fallout 76 another chance. Like, that in itself just shows me how much people are willing to give Bethesda another chance. And they continue to not learn anything. Next week is going to be amazing. Because by next week, we're going to have actual opinions, actual bug lists of how much Fallout 76 has improved since their absolute disastrous launch. And we've been covering their game pretty closely, I would say, since then. How many of these chances are going to result in another wave of just blasting Bethesda, I wonder? Chat, unfortunately, I think has the correct answer. When there's this many people willing to give Bethesda another chance, Bethesda has no incentive to learn. Which kind of brings me back to a conversation that has come up time and time again, whether it be in chat in DMs over Discord, over Twitter, or whatever. 
And that is the power of voting with your wallet. Far too many times people say, it doesn't matter whether I get it or not. I'm just one person. My opinion doesn't matter. And this mentality, I I will state over and over and over again, I hate this mentality. Hate it, hate it, hate it, hate it. Because when tens of thousands, when hundreds of thousands of people have this exact same mentality, those people are the problem. Those people are the reason Bethesda believes they can just get away with this. They're the reason Blizzard can just get away with putting out a half-baked remaster and calling it a remake. They are the reason that they that Bethesda thinks they can do the bare minimum for tweaking the Fallout 4 engine, releasing it as an MMO, and call it revolutionary with 16 times the detail of something that has the exact same level of detail. Maybe one day Bethesda will learn, but I almost doubt it. I will tell you who did learn something. Damn, that was a sound. I don't even know what the heck that was. I think that was the uh, server door creaking. And it somehow got picked up on the mic. In any case, Facebook at least learned something. Because fortunately, the overwhelming majority of people decided not to vote with their wallet. Or rather they did by not voting. The point is, is that the Facebook Libra cryptocurrency is basically dead. Facebook's ambitions to turn their Libra cryptocurrency into the de facto digital currency to be the one global currency has basically failed as everyone realized, oh, wait, it's Facebook. Maybe we shouldn't do that. Wow, what a concept. Libra is now basically a new PayPal for Facebook-based transactions. And that's it. Granted, it's still ambitious, but it is a huge step down from Libra trying to be the one currency to rule them all. And I, for one, am glad to see it actually fail. We're going to take a break here. When we come back, Pokemon Go is actually in the news. I know. I'm kind of surprised, too. Nya, nya, nya. Bah. Mm, bah. 
Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe. <clears throat> the broken Bunsen burner burns so bright. South. Jamie. Southeast Asian Peninsula. Hey, hey, Jamie. Yes. I think the only line we need from you today is drivers who switch to progressive could say big. Cool. I just got to finish my warm-ups. <clears throat> foul, foul, throw in the towel. History, history. Switch history, to progressive history. today. Santa ski slalom in a salmon skin suit. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Welcome back, Eagle Eyes on Tech. I'm Eagle Falcon. Pokemon Go. Yes, I am surprised it's around two. I'm like, Pokemon Go is like, excuse me. It was a game that was very, very, and I mean, very popular. Like, way more popular than it probably should have, but it was a global phenomenon. And, well, it's pretty much almost completely vanished. And during the pandemic, of course, it's very hard to go play a game like Pokemon Go that it, that literally, in order to play it, you have to go and walk around and travel. Well, Pokemon Go has, in fact, adapted with the times and has made it so that you can participate in rate in, excuse me, raids remotely. Chat is reminiscing about all the wonderful safety risks. People having phones mounted on their windshields and trying to go catch things remotely or just stopping on the side of the road to go catch that Pikachu. Gotta catch them all, car crashes. Woo! Oh, man. It's probably for the best that Pokemon Go has died down quite a bit. Oh, man. Now all those memories are flooding back. The stories of people literally driving into graveyards just to go catch that one oddball Pokemon. Heck, I actually talked with some of my coworkers. We wanted to try and claim our store being as old as it was is historic and our store should actually be a Pokemon stop just so that our front counter gal could just keep pinging it. While waiting on customers. Oh yeah, and then there was all the stories of it being a menace to public parks. Even though the whole point of a public park is for people to visit it! That actually should have been our pitch to the owner of our work at the time. To turn our store into into a Pokestop. To help promote foot traffic. The point is Pokemon Go still exists and they are doing what they can to try and still remain relevant in a time where we're all told to stay home. But really, Pokemon Go has kind of fallen out of popularity and 
Animal Crossing has kind of taken its place. Since Animal Crossing is a game where there is an infinite amount of stuff to do, and you are pretty much required. Or rather, you're not required, but you you don't have to move anywhere. Well, Animal Crossing, I would say, has been one of the big reasons the Nintendo Switch has suddenly become so popular. Like, it is very, and I do mean very difficult, to get a Nintendo Switch right now. There are massive shortages. And what has helped with that shortage is now scalpers setting up bots to buy Nintendo Switches online the instant they are available and sell them at a higher price. (sighs) This is... I can't even begin to say how much this disappoints me. That this is now a thing. That we are actually automating, trying to create a shortage of Nintendo Switches just so that these bot owners can resell them at a scalped price. On one hand, it's a smart move to do if you're a greedy SOB, but on the other hand, really? Really? We're actually now automating scalping. This disappoints me greatly. However, to bring a little bit of joy back to our hearts, we do have an increase in people distributing DIY instructions of how to go and find used components of all the switches and reassemble them to create working ones. And for that, I have to say, that is good news. I mean, it's not like a a big thing, but just the fact that there is a push to go and repurpose broken hardware, that brings a smile to my heart. I'm sorry, it just does. That being said, however, there is a firmware out there for the Switch. That was weird. There is an update updated firmware for the Nintendo Switch that does hint that there could be a new version of the Nintendo Switch on the way. Oh boy, here we go! It's rumor time! We might in fact see a new updated version of the Nintendo Switch that may introduce higher-end hardware using the model number NXABCD which honestly does kind of sound like it was made up on the spot, which does kind of make me raise a brow as to, are you for real? Saying that there could be a Nintendo Switch 
Pro model coming soon, TM. All right, look, look, look. I think it is very possible that in the year 2021, we might see a new Nintendo Switch. And I think it will be called just that, the new Nintendo Switch. And I think it will have a slightly updated CPU. I think it'll have a slightly updated GPU. And I do mean slight. These sort of rumors have been around for a while. Saying that, oh, there's going to be a new updated updated Switch. There's going to be a new updated Switch. There's going to be a new updated Switch. Oh my God, it's going to be so good. Oh my God, my God, my God, my God, my God. It's going to support 4K and... 240 frames, it's going to have freaking real-time ray tracing and all these specs and this, that, and the other thing. And it's going to be so amazing. It's going to be portable. It's going to give me puppies and unicorns. And oh my God, it is all wishful thinking and you know it. I am so sick of hearing there is going to be a 4K capable switch. I am so sick of hearing rumors that there is going to be a Nintendo Switch that competes with the PS5 for power. I am so sick of hearing that that Nintendo is finally going to try and go for the high-end, high-frames, high-graphical-capable console. Because when was the last time Nintendo ever did that outside of the original NES? I take that back. I would say the only time Nintendo has ever made a push for better graphics was the Super Nintendo and the N64. And that's it. Nintendo's bread and butter since the dawn of time, since the world has been spinning, has been content chat's also trying to say the gamecube 2 was a big push for graphical fidelity and to a lesser extent i'd say yes the game and watch no chat the game and watch was not a big push in graphical capabilities stop it you're drunk I guarantee you the new Switch is going to feature probably a 5 or 10% CPU and GPU performance increase. Maybe. If anything, the bigger push is going to be on battery life because the battery life on the Switch is abysmal. That is the one thing keeping the 3DS alive is the fact that 3DS has battery life for days and the Switch has 
an afternoon's worth of battery life. Period. The key with Nintendo is content. They know this. Because you can only get Animal Crossing on the Nintendo Switch or one of the other Nintendo platforms. You're only going to find Mario on a Nintendo console. Or if you hate yourself, you're going to find it on, on the iPhone. But let's be honest, that game sucked. Same thing with Animal Crossing on the iPhone. That also sucked. You're only going to find Pokemon to a real extent on the Nintendo consoles. But I'll tell you this right now. Anyone who tries to push to say that Nintendo is finally learning that Nintendo is going to make a pure powerhouse of a machine, that they're going to say that the the new Nintendo Switch is going to compete with PC gaming. They're dumb. Or just hilariously misinformed. It is not realistic for Nintendo to take that approach. What is realistic, however, is LG deciding that they need to do something different to try and capture more of the mobile market. Yeah, that's actually probably the best comment that chat chat has uh, ma- made today. Those people want to try and claim the 24-watt system on a chip that the Switch runs on is going to compete with a 300-watt real-time ray tracing graphic card. Not even the CPU, just the graphic card. In any case, we are hearing rumors about the LG Velvet, which is going to feature, get this, I, I don't think you've ever heard of this before, an all-screen front display with a punch-out for the front-facing camera, curved glass around the edges, as well as get this a large effective camera on the back of the phone why is this an announcement you're just (laughs) LG announces they are conforming to every other major smartphone on the market Look at how daring I am. I'm LG. I'm going to go copy everyone else. Woo! (sighs) I cannot sigh heavily enough to express my disappointment in this.
chat's once again bringing up the point that if there's no headphone jack, it's dead to them. I'm sorry, chat. I guarantee you just about every single major phone is not going to have a headphone jack. And I hate it too. I hate that the, that the, I hate that the trend of, of no headphone jack is catching on this much, but I really do hate it. Do not misinterpret me. But if your philosophy is no headphone jack, no buy, you are never going to buy a new phone. That's just the way of the world now, unfortunately. The instant that Samsung got rid of the headphone jack on the Note 10, that was the nail in the coffin. It just was. Even the new OnePlus phone has no headphone jack. In fact, the OnePlus phone, OnePlus has actually gotten rid of the headphone jack a while back. And for a company that has always had the philosophy of never compromise, that has always been a huge slap in the face to say that you never compromise, but you are compromised by not having a headphone jack and you have not had a headphone jack for a long time. And before any of these companies try to come back and say, well, we couldn't get the waterproofing without the headphone jack. What's this? I hold in my hand the Samsung Galaxy S10. That is IPS water resistant and has a headphone jack. And the fact that everyone's getting rid of the jack is obvious. It's to sell $200 wireless earbuds. It is, and I hate it. I hate that that has become the trend. That the jack must die so that we can sell wireless earbuds. Speaking of OnePlus, OnePlus released the OnePlus 8 and the OnePlus 8 Pro, both of which are very good phones, I might add. They are both excellent phones, but for a company that has, since the dawn of their inception, said to never compromise, that they are flagship killers, that they are the ones that will kill the absurdly expensive phone to release the OnePlus 8 Pro that starts at, and I'm not even kidding, at $900. And of course, features a chunk of the screen missing to house your front-facing camera 
well, you're not a flagship killer anymore. You're a flagship. You're one plus eight. One plus has now literally become the problem. They are now part of the problem. Just straight up. The price of smartphones is becoming, across the board, obscene. And for once, it's not... It started as being Apple's fault. But I would argue now, it's becoming a Samsung-created problem. With the S20 Ultra being a non-gimmick phone starting at $1,400. That's gross. That is obscene. And the fact that OnePlus, the company that starts by saying you don't have to sell a kidney to get a good phone, to put their top-tier phone starting at $900, you're a flagship. You just are. And you know what's even weirder? Let's just put this in perspective. This is the reality we live in now, where the never compromise phone is now just shy of $1,000 with no headphone jack. And Apple's the one selling a $400 phone with their best processor in it. What is this timeline? Apple has made it official. There is a new iPhone SE. It is a smaller 4.7 inch phone with their highest end, or not their highest end, but still their latest A13 system on a chip. Touch ID. Granted, it doesn't have their high-end camera. It is. It, it does have the old iPhone 8 design. So it is. So it has a border on the top, a border on the bottom. It's not an all-screen phone. It does have wireless charging. There is no headphone jack, unfortunately. But I mean, were you really expecting Apple to bring back the headphone jack? That actually would be the sign that we are in the most bizarre timeline. That Apple brings back the headphone jack. The only downside, the only downside with the new iPhone SE, assuming you don't care about the screen size, is the battery is less than 2,000 milliamp. That battery life is going to be an issue. That being said, I have no idea how much of an issue it's going to be, considering the fact that Apple does do a pretty decent job at managing their battery life. If it was an Android phone with that with that battery in it, I would say guaranteed unusable. iOS is battery efficient enough that it might be able to pull it off. Might. Big might. 
chat thinks it's going to last six to eight hours. I'm not willing to make that declaration. Because Apple has squeezed some impressive battery life numbers out of a battery this small. We're not going to know, though, until people with more money and times on their hands than I have get a hold of the phone. Speaking of Apple, there are rumors coming out that we could be seeing four new iPhones this fall. And that they could be seeing camera updates very similar to what we saw on the iPad Pro. The iPad Pro got a bit of a camera redesign, having two cameras and a LiDAR built into it. So therefore, TechCrunch has made the bold prediction of saying that the next iPhone could have LiDAR. Wait, that's not a bold prediction at all. That's what we'd call predictable. I'm just saying. We're also getting predictions saying that there's going to be 5G models of the iPhone. Well, duh. As well as a cheaper HomePod. I kid you not. I forgot the HomePod existed. Real talk, listeners. How many of you remember the HomePod exists? Let's be honest, when you think of smart speakers, you think what? 80% of people have a Amazon Echo device and the remaining 20% have a Google smart speaker. Maybe that percentage is closer is maybe maybe there's more people with with Google smart speakers than than the than the Amazon ones. Yeah, chat's going what's a HomePod? The HomePod is a Siri powered smart speaker. It's basically an Amazon Echo except powered by Siri instead of the Amazon Echo Assistant. Now, one of the reasons why a lot of you forgot this thing existed was because the HomePod started at, and I'm not even kidding, $300. Yeah, $300. Hundred dollars is what this thing started at. So a cheaper HomePod. Well, I'd hope so. It can't get much more expensive. Now, when the HomePod actually originally came out, one of the biggest pushes they gave out was sound quality. And I'm not going to lie. I don't remember how good the sound was on the HomePod. So we'll see. I'll tell you this right now. The HomePod has no chance 
if there's not at least a $50 model to compete with, say, the Echo Dot. I'm just saying. We're going to take a break here. When we come back, AMD is going for the throat on Intel when it comes to CPU releases. Yeah, AMD actually did release new CPUs. It's actually is fascinating when we talk about what those CPUs are. And also, Samsung trying to make the most eco-friendly packaging ever. Over the past year, I've helped thousands turn their lives around. And today, I'm going to tell you the one simple trick that will change everything. All you have to do is... And now a message from our sponsor. With Progressive, you can bundle your boat, RV, or other outdoor vehicle for great protection and even more savings. Progressive. And that's it. You'll have that for the rest of your lives. I'm so excited for you. Progressive. There's never a bad time for great protection. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Bundle discount not available in all states or situations. Welcome back, Eagle Eyes on Tech. I'm Eagle Falcon. We have a patent that may signify that uh, Steam might be trying to get back into the console space. So, quite some time ago, Valve tried what they called the Steam Box. The concept of turning Steam, which is their game launcher software, turning it into a Linux-based operating system intended for system builders to make small form factor gaming PCs and then at the same time also create... The Steam Controller, which I actually own, not one, but two of. Actually, where's my second controller? Huh. I should figure out where that went. And, well, the whole thing, uh... Yeah. It didn't go well. For the most part, what ended up happening is only a handful of companies made Steam boxes. Not a lot of developers made their games compatible with Linux. And the whole concept basically died off. And one of the death knells in it was the fact that no one besides a small handful of us liked the Steam controller. Now, personally, the only complaint I have with a Steam controller are the two giant touchpads. I would have much rather have seen this controller with two joysticks and a standard D-pad. If it had that, this would have been, in my opinion, the perfect controller. It's big, it's comfortable in large hands like my like my own. It's just that with one of your joysticks having to be this trackpad instead it's obnoxious and no matter how much i try the other d-pad being this other touchpad doesn't help anything at all 
Well, Valve has applied a patent. It is for a device that looks exactly like the current Steam controller, but with modular components. And unfortunately, the only component that appears to be modular is the one joystick. You're so close! You are so close! Look, 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 I get it. The, the whole concept of having a trackpad and using the triggers to, to emulate a mouse, that's cool and all, but... It's literally the problem. Please, I'm begging you, if you bring this back, please... Give us a second joystick. That's all you gotta do. Give a second thumbstick. That's all we want. That being said, though, I would not mind now that gaming on Linux is a lot more acceptable and major strides been pushed to actually emulate Windows games on Linux respectably well I actually would not mind seeing the SteamOS and Steam boxes being pushed again I think that actually might lead to some very fascinating computers I mean small form factor gaming PCs are rather interesting chat points out that wine is not emulation there's a um there's another api that is currently being used that's not wine i forgot the name of it but it is a form of emulation i think if i'm wrong about being emulation then fine i'm wrong about being emulation the point is, is that there have been major strides within the last few years about proton that's what it was And it's based on wine. Okay, well, whether it is or isn't, it doesn't matter. The point is that there's been major strides about playing Windows games on Linux. But actually, it's not emulation. It's, oh, God. All right, fine. It's not technically emulation. Moving on. I guarantee you anyone else is going to call it emulation, even if it's technically not emulation. Emulation's just become a dirty word. That's what it really is. Google is removing Android apps in Chrome OS and replacing them with web apps. That's... So whenever I talk smack about Chrome OS, one of the first arguments I hear come up is it's good enough for some people. Then the second argument is that, but you have Android apps. And there's a lot you can do with Android apps. To which my counter argument to that is always, well, then why not just use an Android device then? 
Well, now it doesn't matter because the Android apps are slowly starting to be replaced with web apps in the first place. Look, I'll, I'll, I'll be blunt again when it comes to Chrome OS. It is still a dead-on-arrival platform. It has a few, underline a few, useful applications. And yes, education is one of them. Quite possibly the only one. At the same time, though, I still am under the in, uh, am under the opinion it is much better to teach on a platform that has a future. Android has a future. iOS has a future. Windows has a future. macOS has a future. Chrome OS's future is still being insignificant, doing the bare minimum there is out there. No matter how you look at it. And even if you think it's a good device for, say, someone who's visiting or my son or daughter or whatever, I will still argue that a better choice is a used Windows machine that you can pick up for the same price or less than a Chrome OS device. I will say also, after looking at these used Chrome OS devices. I actually did get a chance to actually play with a couple that came off le- that came off lease and that the leasing company was trying to sell for I'm not even kidding for $40. It was unusable. It really was and it's because these Chrome OS devices they are literally built for the bare minimum. And as the web's demands become greater, the device just cannot keep up because they're equipped with a gig of RAM and a single core ARM or Celeron processor. I'll tell you this right now. The more I look into Chrome OS, the less it becomes attractive and the more it just seems like Chrome OS exists to create e-waste. It has become harder and harder for me to see the future of Chrome OS. It is a dying platform and no one should get on it, period. But that being said... Google plans on making its own ARM processors for future Pixel phones and Chromebooks. 
Why? Oh God, why? Okay, maybe for the Pixel phones. Making your own custom ARM chip. Maybe that can be, you know, a great advancement and give Google an edge with their own Pixel phones over Samsung phones, over OnePlus phones or whatever. But in Chromebooks? Uh Uh-huh. I just don't, I, I just, I, 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 I am almost broken on this, on the fact that Google continues to want to give Chromebooks a future. <sighs> I, I, I cannot stress this enough. Stop supporting Chrome OS. It's dead. What is it with Google recently and just supporting dead platforms or just coming up with just dead? Modern Google. I swear, it just seems like Google wants to kill the reputation they have for killing projects. Because for the longest time, that was Google's history. Killing project after project after project after project after project that just didn't pan out. We're all still waiting for Stadia to just be straight up killed as it continues to be a platform based on lies. Chrome OS, at least, has shown signs of success. I get that. But holy cow. It is hard to make a justification for why anyone outside of the education sector that just doesn't want to hire an IT staff to maintain real computers... to get a Chromebook. I'm sorry, no matter how hard you try, a Chromebook will not be a real computer. By definition. Let's talk about AMD. AMD has released three new Epic processors. And what's fascinating about these processors are the specs epic if you don't know is amd's server platform so these are the processors that are going to compete with intel xeon processors in data centers first we have an eight core 16 thread 180 watt processor clocking in at 3.7 gigahertz and boosting up to 3.9 gigahertz and that is an all core boost not a 
single core boost. Then we have a 16 core, 32 thread, 240 watt part, 3.5 gigahertz with a 3.9 gigahertz boost. And then finally, a 24 core, 48 thread, 240 watt part, 3.2 gigahertz, 3.7 gigahertz boost. But they have a 64 core processor. What do these core, what does this mean? It's the clock speeds. The fact that the clock speeds are so high is what's notable here. The Epic platform, normally when you talk about servers, what matters more is the sheer number of cores. Because on these platforms, you can pop in multiple CPUs. On the Epic platform, you can, most of the servers, honestly, only use one or two processors. The biggest push with Epic has been that you could fit two processors worth of cores on one chip. But their clock speeds were low. 2 gigahertz, 2.3 gigahertz, 2.6 gigahertz. These CPUs are getting close to 4 gigahertz per core. The goal here is single core performance. It is literally the only place Intel right now excels at. And AMD wants to go and take literally the last thing Intel has. That's what these processors mean. These are after workload-specific applications. I would say... It's targeting workstation loads. But let's be honest. They've already got Threadripper for that. These are intended to be for things like cloud gaming. For things like high demand storage because remember these are epic processors which means they are going to have an obscene number of PCI express lanes so you pair that with say 4896 NVMe SSDs these things are going to be speed demons and they're no longer to be limited on just on, on just the low clock speed of the multi-core part. 
this is going to be very interesting to see how these parts are going to be used and also what the adoption of these parts in the server space is going to be. Now, keep in mind, it's going to be a while before we see the effect of this in the server space. Servers tend to only upgrade every... Oh, four, six, eight years. I will say there has been a noticeable drop in price of some used servers. For example, the Nehalem generation servers are dirt cheap on the used market. In fact, I am sincere, I am I am honestly considering going all the way back to the Nehalem generation for some of my server projects because you can literally pick up some of these Nehalem based servers for under a hundred dollars. Which to me is just insane. Like that is literally rock bottom for a used server. All right, have I bored enough people with server talk? Let's talk about how Windows 10 has added a feature that you can now wirelessly file transfer from Samsung phones using link to Windows. The feature is out, however, it does have a huge limitation. The limit of files you can transfer is 512 megabytes. Not going to lie. Kind of a bummer. Now, the the, the restriction does make sense because I want to say, and I'm kind of glancing through the dialogue of the article from Engadget real quick to confirm this, but I'm pretty sure you can do this from wherever. So it is going over... the actual internet as opposed to, say, just a Wi-Fi direct connection or anything of that nature. I cannot confirm that at this time. That's kind of disappointing. Instagram DMs are now available for anyone to use on the desktop. I'm not going to... Wait, I already talked about this one. That's why this story feels familiar. How did this get back in my stack? Let's get rid of this. You can now Instagram DM on the desktop. Why this wasn't a feature before, I'll never know. Moving on. Instagram has also done probably the most obvious thing in everything. Instagram has partnered up with the company Chow Now to allow people to purchase ingredients to make dishes that are posted on Instagram. What took 
you so long. This is literally like the most obvious thing on how to monetize your platform ever. There's the real question. How did it take them this long to come up with this? How about a quick update on folding at home? Folding at home, if you don't remember, we've talked about it quite a bit on the podcast, is the application that allows people to use their own CPU and GPU resources on their computer, whether it be just resources, whether it be just when they're not using the computer, or in the case of my home data center, dedicating whole machines to doing what's called protein folding. Protein folding are simulations that scientists use to discover how viruses and diseases behave and to potentially find cures or vaccines for said viruses. Folding at Home has been pretty much focusing almost all their efforts into working on COVID-19. And as a result, it has exploded. Well, Folding at Home has now exceeded 2.4 exaflops of compute performance. It's only been like a week or two since they exceeded one exaflop. It's just, I think it is like literally impossible to actually point out just how powerful this is. When they surpassed one exaflop, folding at home's combined power exceeded the top seven or top 15 supercomputers combined. How do you top that? Folding at Home has also released the sheer number of performance that has been donated to them with Folding at Home. And the numbers are kind of fascinating. One hundred and twenty thousand AMD GPUs, five hundred and forty six thousand NVIDIA GPUs, ten thousand. I'm sorry, ten million three hundred and eighty two thousand CPU cores. But you know what the most fascinating part about this entire graph to me is? is the OS breakdown. There are 78,667 Mac CPUs donated to the Folding at Home cause. And only 70 AMD GPUs. That means there are 78,000 
597 max that are computing for folding at home with no discrete GPU or have opted to not allow their AMD GPU to compute. So to all you Mac users out there that are using your Mac minis and your MacBook Airs to go and try and find a cure treatment and vaccine to COVID-19, you guys, uh, you you guys are, uh, you're trying. That's, that's what I'll, uh, that, that's, that's what I'll say. Oh, yes, and the MacBooks, even though the MacBook, the MacBooks are like, how much is the MacBook actually contributing? Because that's the other thing about this. The MacBooks, they're either so old they're running on Core 2 Duos, or they're the more modern MacBook that has been killed, I might add. You can no longer buy a MacBook from Apple. Or it's the more modern one that has a freaking 3-watt three, three part in it. God, rest in peace, MacBook. You were brought back to life in the worst possible fashion. Although here is another very interesting fact. On Linux, 450,000 CPUs are given to the folding at home cause, which makes up 4.4 million CPU cores. That means on Linux, about on average... They're folding with 10 core processors. Whereas on PCs, we have about 800,000 CPUs and 5.5 million CPU cores. So those who are on Linux are intentionally using much higher core count CPUs than on Windows. And a lot of that, actually, I I think someone in the chat nails it, is that there are more people running Linux servers donating to the cause than there are just the average Windows user just giving up their GTX 980 and their quad-core CPU to the cause. I wonder how many actual home users are using Linux to fold at home. I also wonder who it was that thought, man, I should go take an Xbox One X and use the exact same motherboard and CPU to go build a workstation. 
well. Chinese manufacturer Chewy, which I have probably mispronounced, has unveiled that they went ahead and made a small form factor workstation that is using an AMD APU with the power of the Xbox One S. However, I'm going to call BS. I'm going to call BS for a couple of reasons. One, why on earth would anyone want to use the AMD Jaguar CPU. The CPU was easily the weakest part about the Xbox One, by far. And then baffling enough, the GPU has been replaced with a discrete one. So you're no longer even using the GPU that was built in to the APU. You have added a Radeon R7 350 GPU to it. Which is technically a little faster, but any cost savings you would have had by using the AMD APU is now gone. Because you've now added this other chip. And then on top of that, the board has to be custom because the actual I.O. on the blasted thing includes two PS2 ports, a DVI port, four USB 3... I'm sorry, four USB 2.0 ports, two USB 3.0 ports, an Ethernet port, and the standard audio configuration you see on a the normal audio configuration you see on, say, a normal PC. None of which are the sort of ports you see on the Xbox One. So it has to be a custom board. It has to be. So how much cost savings are you actually getting with this thing? I'm starting to doubt this thing because really the whole point would be to use that CPU and GPU combo something definitely doesn't smell right with this this brings us however to the last burb the last story of the day the weirdest story of the day Samsung has introduced new TV packaging materials that will after, you're, after you've unpacked the TV, you can then use the box to create 
other household furniture like magazine racks and pet houses. I'm not going to lie. This is quite possibly one of the most pointless things I have ever seen involving a box. I mean, for starters, do you really want to go ahead after you get your TV and set it up? Do you really want to start going ahead and building a small pet house for it? For for your cat? No, you're going to want to break down that box as quickly as possible and just get it out to and send it off to, to be recycled. Like, when push comes to shove, this is really, really silly. Of course, I'm kidding. This is actually kind of hilarious. I mean, wouldn't you want to go ahead and just say, hey, kids, go, go ahead, just go go reassemble this? I cannot tell you how many times getting parts here for the server room, that boxes just sit there for a while while I try to go find time to go take the box cutter and cutter and go break the thing down. The fact that it can go ahead and be repurposed actually is legitimately unique. And I, for one, even though most people are not going to do it, do support this kind of reusing of materials in this fashion, whether it be for a magazine rack, whether it be for a cat home, whether it be for whatever, it's still pretty cool. And when push comes to shove, I don't think it's really hurting anything. That's going to do it for me for this episode of Eagle Eyes on Tech. Thank you for listening. Be sure to check out my daily podcast, The Early Bird Briefing, which you can find every single morning at 4 a.m. wherever you found this podcast, on iTunes, on Google Podcasts, on iHeartRadio, pretty much all across the web. And also make sure to check out my Twitch page at twitch.tv slash eaglefalcon. We even record this podcast every single Sunday, usually-ish. It's kind of wonky. Take care. And we'll see you next time. You know who really needs to worry about this whole thing that Samsung has started now with with these uh, pet boxes? It's the people who make pet beds. Because as we all know, your cat will ignore the pet bed you bought them. And they will instead sleep in the cardboard box. Well, 
if Samsung finally puts two and two together and they go ahead and just skip the step and turn the TV box into an origami pet bed, well, that's it. The pet bed market is dead. Now we see the real endgame that Samsung is after. To remind pet owners that Progressive covers pets on our auto policy at no extra charge, we're making a really cute pet-themed radio commercial. You gotta see this dog. It's a little puffball. It looks like a piece of cotton candy that I could just eat up. Oh, and it waddles when it walks. He's a little ducky dog. Oh, I wish you could see it. We really should have planned this better. Get coverage for your pets with an auto policy from Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Coverage for cats and dogs included with the purchase of collision coverage and is subject to policy terms. Modern leaders. It's not just their ability to reason that we value or their eloquence. It's more than their intelligence that we admire. What truly matters is their humanity. Just like modern leaders, the LS is human at heart. Every aspect of the Lexus LS is crafted around you, engineered to a higher standard, the human standard. The new 2021 Lexus LS. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.